Hear now the word of God. When Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. They reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the camp, uh, the midst of the camp, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and his men and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray. Lord, we are incapable of really understanding what your word says. Our only hope is for you to send your spirit upon us to open our eyes and illuminate your word. So would you do that for us tonight? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It depends on what circles you run in, depends on if you uh, see what, think that what's going on on Twitter is what's going on in the world, depends on how much you're involved in social media and who you're following, but something that I have come to believe over time is that many Christians have trouble knowing what their attitude toward the world ought to be. Uh, when it comes to the church, broadly speaking, it seems like there's a wide spectrum of attitudes toward the world. You have this, this range. On the one end of the spectrum, you have Christians who are so combative and so removed from the world that they, they don't, at least they don't think they live in the world at all. 
And then on the other end, you have, and, and by the way, those on, who are on that end seem to have no witness to speak of because they are very careful to only be around other Christians. And, and when they do meet with unbelievers, they combatively argue with them and they show constant hostility. And I can give you examples. Examples of this would be some groups that you don't think of combative, really. It's the Amish would be one example, right? They're so far removed from the world that they have no connection with the world at all, at least to the best of their ability. Um, there are similar groups that I would say they qualify, don't even qualify as being Christians, but they're certainly combative. That would be groups like the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, who almost revel in being hated by the world and who try to stoke that hatred as much as possible. Then on the other end of the spectrum, though, you have Christians who are so worldly, they're so compromised that at the end of the day, you have to wonder whether they see themselves at war with the their enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil at all. And, and sadly, many professing Christians simply don't have the stomach for disagreement. I say this as someone who went to Christian college. I've accumulated a tremendous number of friends over the years who went to Christian college. And you see those, those differences. I'm not saying that that's something I see to here at this church. I certainly don't. Um, but if the world says to those people, jump, then they say, I, I guess I can jump. What harm could it do for me to jump if the world tells me to jump? Uh, or if the world says something is okay, they just fold and they adopt whatever mentality the world says that they should have. And they think, I can make this fit with what God says if I think about it the right way. I remember an interview with a famous actor who was famous for being in violent, profane, sexually explicit movies. And he said he, said he grew up as a Methodist and, and he still sees himself as a Christian. He said he really sees no contradiction between the way he lived and, and the career that he had and the faith that he, he claimed to hold. Uh, there was another famous musician. He claimed to be a Christian and, and yet he had completely yielded to the world's understanding of, Christian, of human sexuality. He said Christians who believe in sexual sin need to get with the times. That's the one end of the spectrum. And at that end of the spectrum, you have to wonder whether there's any sense at all in Christians being called to be different from the world in their minds, in their beliefs, in the way that they live. And so you have these two extremes. On the one end, you have total capitulation. And on the other hand, you have total war all the time. Um, and even almost a rejection of being in the world at all. And part of being a Christian, though, means coming to terms with the fact that there is a very real hostility between God's people and the world, and yet we still live in the world. And when our passage opens this morning, Saul, this newly appointed king, is coming to terms with two threats. One of the threats is inside the kingdom. Think about this. Israel is a divided nation at this point. Now, they're not officially divided, as in a civil war, but there are people within the kingdom who have seen Saul become king and they have said, Saul's not going to be able to deliver us. People don't have confidence in him. And the passage tonight shows that he doesn't have the confidence of, of these people. And that's one of the threats, a very real threat to a nation, that internal threat, that internal threat that says, I do not have confidence in my leaders. That's a serious, major threat to any nation. Then the other threat, though, comes from the outside, not just the internal threat, but the external threat. And in tonight's passage, this group is called the Ammonites. In a very real sense, tonight's passage reminds us just how serious the threats facing God's people are. 
And, and I want to remind you of that. I think Jesus does this for us in John chapter 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if we aren't in a posture that is prepared for war, we're going to be caught flat-footed. We need to know where things stand. At the same time, our job as Christians isn't to burn the whole place down. We are supposed to live in the world. We are supposed to live in this place, holding forth the word of truth, and yet we're supposed to do it without compromise. We live among a people who are hostile to us, and they are hostile to God's truth. But the idea is that we're supposed to be here. We're not supposed to abandon ship. So what else did Jesus say about this? He said, he's praying to God. He's praying to the Father, and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So I want you to see this balance in what Jesus is saying. We're in the world. We stay in the world all our lives. And yet there is an antagonism. There's an antipathy. The world doesn't like us. And, and, and we, we, we keep up the witness that he's given for us to hold nonetheless. And that's what Jesus wants for you and me. This is actually the ideal that Jesus is praying for here. What he has taught his disciples and what he's praying for for us here. He wants us to live in this place, but he wants us to always have a sense that we don't belong in it. And that means being prepared to make war. Not physical war, certainly not not holy war. We, We don't physically destroy our enemies. And yet the Bible is very clear that our lives are meant to be lives of spiritual warfare. And my fear is many Christians are not prepared for that. They don't expect it. And therefore, if they do see signs of hatred from the world, they think something is deeply wrong. And actually, it's the opposite. It means that you are one of God's people when you experience that. And so we learn a few things about the warfare we engage in tonight. We learn some things about the enemy. But we also learn about God's solution in three points. And the three points tonight are the world, the spirit, and the kingdom. And those three are going to guide us as we move through the text. First, we see the arrogance of the world. And this happens in the first three verses tonight. In one of the more disturbing moments in biblical history, uh, a man and his daughters fled from a city that was destined for destruction at the hand of God. And so the man and his daughters fled into the hill country and they hid in an isolated cave. And while they were in the cave, they were there for so long, they had grown so hopeless, so fearful, that the two daughters began to talk to one another. And they began to convince one another that their father was perhaps the last man on earth. Maybe they would never meet another man for the rest of their lives. And so fearing that they would never have children, they got their father drunk and committed incest with him. A really disturbing moment in uh, the history of humanity. Uh, and it's a moment that if, 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 they, if it had never happened, we would not have tonight's passage, though. Tonight's passage is born out of that disturbing moment. Literally, this is because the two daughters did become pregnant. And the older, the older had a son, and his name was Moab. And he's the father of the Moabites. And you may remember that a Moabite woman ended up being King David's 
great-grandmother. The younger daughter also had a son, and his name was Ben-Ami. And he ended up being the father of the people we know in biblical history as the Ammonites. So the Israelites are the descendants of Abraham, and the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot and his daughters. And what that means is that these two people groups, who are even at war tonight in the passage, are actually cousins of one another. No sooner has Saul been proclaimed king of Israel than danger arises. Nahash, he's the king of the Ammonites. He comes against a city on the eastern edge of the Jordan River. This is a vulnerable location in Israel. It's the city of Jabesh. Now, the people of Jabesh seem too weak to fight. Their plan is they don't even plan to fight against Nahash when he comes against them. Instead, their plan A is to make a treaty. And verse 1 throws us right into this this treaty. Now, keep in mind something about this treaty. This treaty would mean more than them just living alongside of one another. It would mean more than them just not fighting each other. This is a treaty of total capitulation. This would be folding to King Nahash. They are proposing having him as their king now. So this would be them literally getting a king like all the nations because he would be a king from the nations. Now, I mentioned back in December that in the ancient Near East, when people would make treaties, there was a Hebrew word for that. There was a Hebrew word for making a treaty. And it wasn't, word the, it wasn't the word make, it was the word cut. And, and I just mentioned that so you understand uh, there is something relevant about that here. When you made a treaty, you cut a treaty. And Jabesh asks the Israelites to cut a treaty with Nahash. This would involve cutting a a sacrificial animal normally. But see, Nahash has a different plan. He will cut the treaty, but the treaty he wants to cut is with the eyes of Jabesh. It's a very gruesome treaty. He says, on this condition, I will cut a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. There's a strategic side to this. Uh, When the people would fight, they would use a combination of spears and shields. And so what you would do is you would lock your shields together and then you would aim with your spear in your right hand if you were right-handed. And then you would thrust. So with your right eye, you'd be able to look out over the side of the shield and your compatriot's shield. You would form sort of a, a phalanx. And when you took that person's right eye, you not only stole his depth perception, you stole his ability to be able to effectively fight in battle. Uh, And they could still serve you. That's what's happening here. He's making a people who can still serve Nahash, but they wouldn't be able to aim a spear. They wouldn't be a threat. They would be at an immense disadvantage. And notice, though, the distant cousin's plan is to hobble Jabesh, but also to humiliate Israel. This, This isn't just a strategic plan here. This is personal. The goal here is humiliation. So, So Jabesh asks for seven days to decide. They want to see if they can find help in Israel. It's hard to know why Nahash would accept this proposal. Why would Nahash say yes to this? Why not just tell them they have to make the decision now or you'll crush them? Well, it may actually be that he's just very cocky. He may be so arrogant. He may may be so full of himself that he just thinks that, fine, Israel's not going to come for you. Even if they did come for you, they wouldn't be able to beat me. Uh, He may actually think that little of Israel. It's very hard to say. 
But in that time, they do send word for help. Now, there's a, something that is it's hard, to, hard to avoid here, and that just feels like there's an, a gospel application at this moment. Because the people of Jabesh know one thing. And the thing that people of Jabesh seem to know is they cannot save themselves. You know, we, we may fault them for not fighting back. We may say, well, look, Jabesh, you should go down with the ship. You should fight and fight until you can't fight anymore. And there's something to be said for that. But they at least acknowledge this thing here. They cannot save themselves. They are, they are no good to defeat this enemy on their own. The help may come, but the help will have to come from outside of themselves. And I, I, one of the things that concerns me is that uh, sometimes I go to uh, the Christian to the bookstores, and and one of the things that it just looks like to me as I as I walk the sections uh, of the bookstore is that the self help section and the Christian section are right next to each other, and oftentimes they blend together, so you can't actually even tell them apart. If you go to Barnes and Noble or if you go to Books a Million and you walk the aisles, that's what you see. Is that I think as far as the bookstore is concerned, you can't tell the difference. And, and Christians teach each other a sort of a form of self-help that oftentimes has nothing to do with the gospel. They teach each other to have high self-esteem, and they, they teach them to think highly of themselves. And I understand that impulse that we think there's something that's going to help a person get through the day if they have self-esteem. And often what's taught in Christianity today is, is a phrase that was coined by Christian Smith, and it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And what they mean by this is it's this belief that God is just a distant being whose purpose is to help us be better people or to be good citizens. The Bible doesn't teach the value of self-esteem. It teaches God-esteem. And I hope that doesn't sound cheesy. It's, it's not meant to be. The Bible teaches us to find our, our uh, self-awareness, our self-worth, everything we believe about ourselves and what we're going to be able to accomplish in our lives by actually looking to God, not looking inside at ourselves and finding something really great inside of here. Because the Bible tells us the more we look in here, the more bad stuff we're going to see. Uh, I like to clean up the house sometimes. My wife will tell you, sometimes. Uh, if I can see my wife uh, getting stressed out about the dirtiness of the house, I'll take it upon myself and say, I can do this. I can clean this house. She's going to walk in, she's going to look around, and she's going to be amazed. And yet, one thing I have learned about my cleaning is that the closer you look at everything, the worse it looks and the worse it is. And that's the way our hearts are. If you get a closer look at each and every one of our hearts, what you find is absolutely no reason for self-esteem. And you have every reason to think that the only hope I have is God-esteem. See, Jabesh knows that they need help. And my friends, that is the beginning of understanding the gospel, knowing that you need help, knowing that you have no good inside of you, knowing that you and I are helpless, fast bound in sin and nature's night. We need help and we cannot give it to ourselves. Do you see yourself that way? The Bible, the Bible says that you should. The Bible says you ought to see yourself that way. At the very least, Jabesh knows that they need help. And so they cry out for help. And what happens is, and this is the beautiful thing, the deliverance they need comes from outside of themselves. So the deliverance is coming. And we see this second tonight in the activity of the Spirit. We see this in verses 4 to 13. So first, the messengers come from Jabesh. They come to Gibeah, which is the home base of Saul. 
I want you to remember this. We immediately think of the king and we immediately think of Jerusalem. Jerusalem doesn't become the capital of Israel until the time of King David. Archaeology tells us Gibeah was probably about three miles north of Jerusalem. Now remember this also, Gibeah is an important place. It's the place where the Levite's concubine was raped by the men of the city in Judges. Um, This thing that sparked the civil war in Israel at the end of Judges happened in the city where Saul is uh, setting up his home base. And and also keep this in mind, when, when Benjamin also had almost totally destroyed Israel, he decided to let the last remaining men of Benjamin get wives... This is important. I know it's not just a matter of history. I want to, I'm getting at a point here. Israel allowed the men of Benjamin at the last moment. He gives them a moment of reprieve and says, I cannot do it. I cannot bring the death blow against my brother Benjamin. We will let them survive. But by the time they go to, to let them survive, there are not any women and there are no more children. And so they let them get women, get wives by raiding the city of Jabesh. Okay, now there's a point to this. It is very possible that both of these places, Gibeah and Jabesh, are very near and dear to Saul's heart because Saul is from Gibeah. But he may have actually had family connections in Jabesh. He may have had a mother or a grandmother that's from Jabesh. Um, They may have been one of those women who were kidnapped from there. In fact, if he's from Gibeah, you can almost bet that that he has a female family member from his past who came from this place. So when the messengers arrive, Saul is not doing very kingly work yet. He's, he's in the fields. He's walking uh, in the fields. He's plowing. It just, it's a, this moment where you see these very humble beginnings of the kingship. Um, there's nothing glorious about his position yet. He's the king, but he's out working in the fields. And as soon as Saul hears the news about Jabesh, verse 6 tells us the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, We've learned in Scripture that for the Spirit of God to rush upon you isn't a mark of conversion necessarily. It is, however, God's way of empowering people to do His will. Think of the times this happens in Scripture. It happened with Othniel. It happened with Gideon. It happened with Jephthah. And he does it for Saul as well in this moment of need. And so as soon as the Spirit comes upon him, he cuts up the ox and he sends them throughout Israel's territory. And there's a threat attached to it. And the threat is, if you don't come to the rescue of Jabesh, bad things will happen. And the bad thing that's going to happen is not you are going to be cut in pieces. The bad thing that's going to happen is your animals will be cut in pieces. So you might remember when the concubine was was violated by the men of Gibeah. These aren't pleasant things to bring up, by the way. It feels like I'm bringing up a lot of gross things in Scripture tonight. And the thing is, those things are coming back to bite Israel in in a real way. But when he, the concubine was violated by the men of Gibeah, what did the Levite do at the very end that just made it even more gruesome? He cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And in the instance of the, of the Levites, it was, his, in the, of Levite, it was his way of expressing rage, um, outrage at each of the families of Israel. But in Saul's case, it's not outrage, it's a warning. He's saying, you don't want this to happen to your animals too, you had better come. And the threat works. Verse 7 says, The dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Notice a couple things about this threat. It isn't a threat against the people themselves. It's a threat against their property. Uh, It's softer than it could be. He could actually say, It's going to happen to you if you don't come. 
And Rick Phillips makes a, a point here in his, his commentary on this passage. He says this tells us something about wise leadership. He says this is wise leadership on Saul's part. And he applies that to churches today. I want to read you what Rick Phillips says. He says, this reminds us that it is not necessary for church leaders to be harsh or insulting when improving or when reproving or exhorting God's people. Those charged with spiritual authority may be forthright, but also moderate in their church discipline. It is always the spirit who makes God's people willing to repent or obey. So I appreciate that word from from Rick Phillips there about wise leadership. It is not necessary to be as brutal as you can be just because you have the power or because you're able to. I think that's wise. And in any case, there's another gospel moment for the people of Jabesh. Because in verse 9, the people of Jabesh finally hear the good news. Rescue is coming. Salvation is coming. And... I want you to notice their response. Their response to the good news is it made the people of Jabesh glad. It made them glad. Here's a very simple question. Has the gospel made you glad? You know, it's true. God is a very important person. God is a very serious being. He takes himself seriously. He is holy. God demands our best. He demands our time. He demands our worship. He demands all that we are. But are you so serious that you have little actual joy in the Lord? Sometimes it's important for us to be reminded that we have been rescued. Uh, the good news has come to us and we have life now. There is, that is nothing to frown at. Over a hundred times in the Bible, we are commanded to rejoice. Even in serious times, we should be defined by rejoicing rather than mourning. We should be glad-hearted people. Does that gladness show through in your life? Would your neighbor say that you are a rejoicing, joyful person? We really ought to aim for that in our lives. We ought to aim for holiness. We also ought to aim for joy. Is that an area where you need to ask God to help you? So God divides the people into three groups and or Saul divides the people into three groups and they descend upon the Ammonites at once. They, they do it in a move that leaves them surrounded and fighting off Israelites all at once. It's actually a very clever military tactic that Saul uses in this case. And so Saul's tactic leaves the Ammonites defeated, thanks in no small part, to the spirit who rushed upon Saul and moved him to do this. And so I just want you to notice this, that the, the rescue of Israel comes through Saul, but it comes really through the Spirit. Even in this moment, as decisions are made, the Spirit is there, almost overriding Saul, in a sense, to make sure that the rescue happens one way or another. And third this evening, we see the kingdom. And this really seems to be the moment where Saul's leadership becomes truly solidified in Israel. The people really do see him as their king finally for the first time. In fact, we see evidence that this starts to happen right here because of how people react after the victory. Think about this. It would be very easy after this victory for Israel to make the wrong inference. And in fact, they do make the wrong inference. The victory happens. And then in verse 12, the people decide they want to kill anybody who spoke badly of King Saul, right? They want to just wipe out those dissenters, those people who didn't really have faith that Saul could do this. 
And behind this is this mistaken belief that it was good for them to ask for a king like all the nations. See, see, they actually think that this justifies their decision to have a king like all the nations. They, they feel like they're vindicated now in what they asked for. And the interesting thing is, it couldn't be more different than that. Ralph Davis says something else. He says this, salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It's not the institution of kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance. You see these two very different mindsets here. On the one hand, you have these people in Israel who are like, we picked the right thing. We picked a king and God honored it. And now here we are and we have what we need. And Saul seems to have the presence of mind that he should have. He seems to understand this, that that's not true. He says in verse 13, not a man shall be put to death today for today. The Lord has worked salvation for Israel. It would have been very tempting for him to say, I have worked salvation for Israel. That is true. I made these wise decisions. I made these excellent calls. You're right to stand behind me. Why don't I have a stronger kingship now? Let's put these people on trial and let's execute them. How tempting to do that. And yet Saul says, today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that Saul is never going to be wiser or more godly as a king than he is in this moment. In my opinion, this is the peak. This is the pinnacle of Saul's ministry as the king. This is a moment of true godly leadership and insight here. You know, a king like all the nations would have executed his enemies once he gained power. It it solidifies not only the fact that the people should fear you, but it also removes your enemies from the scene. You don't have to deal with your enemies if you kill them off. And you can just picture that the Babylonian kings did this. The Ammonite kings did this. The Assyrian kings did this. The Egyptian pharaohs did this. And Saul in this moment has the presence of mind to realize that if God is the one who won the victory, then his opponents aren't necessarily wrong. All this victory really proved is that God can do anything and he can work with anyone. He can even work with somebody like Saul. It's easy for people to see visible failure and see visible success in the church and attribute it to the pastor. It's an easy mistake for people to make. This has been an ongoing problem in the history of the church to think that people come to hear the minister. This is just wrong. In a true church where the scripture is preached, where God's word is declared, the people come to hear God speak. They come to hear the word. We have to be very careful not to confuse the work of the minister and the work of God. At best, a faithful minister will bring what God says to the people, but that's a credit to God. It's not a credit to the pastor. A pastor who preaches what the Bible actually says has nothing nothing noble to claim for himself whatsoever. All he has to do is say, well, I just said to you what God said. One of my favorite passages where this point is made is in one of Martin Luther's sermons. And I'm just going to read to you what Luther said. As you know, Martin Luther is... We think of him as the one who presided over the Reformation largely from Germany, uh, brought the Pope low, gave us Protestantism as we know it. And yet, listen to the humility of what Luther says. He almost sounds lazy here. I kind of like it. He says, he says, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. 
And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Luther was probably the most famous person in the world at that time. And yet Luther would tell you, God did all of it. All I did was say what God said. None of it originated with me. Nothing Luther said was original, at least at his best moments. All of it was God. God did all of it. And this is a moment here that's precious because Saul seems to have that perspective. Now, he's not going to have it for very long, but he has it right now. So let's be careful not to be so fixated on the instrument that we forget the God of the instrument. In the end, the people go to Gilgal after the victory is won, and, and Samuel leads them in what he calls renewing the kingdom. On the one hand, this makes Saul's position as king more solid. On the other hand, the glory and attention gets put back on God, and that's right, that's proper. And the people make peace offerings and they rejoice. Now, there's a reminder here tonight. The Ammonites are not the friends of Israel. They are their enemies. And like the people of Israel, we will fight spiritual battles. If we are saved people, we are going to have spiritual battles. We can make the mistake of fleeing from the world. And we can make the mistake of capitulating to the world. And both of those are errors. Our job is to live in this world on the battlefield and face the conflicts. Listen to what Paul says. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is Paul picturing for us here? He's picturing a life lived in enemy territory. We have to to take these battles seriously. We, We have to recognize that our enemies really do want to destroy us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not our friends. And making peace with them will destroy our lives and destroy our souls. What was God's response to the enemies of Israel? It was to send his spirit. Christian, you are going out into the world this next week. Tomorrow is Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday. All the responsibilities that you face each and every week are going to come upon you as they always do. And I want you to understand this. You have the same spirit. You have the same weapon of warfare against your enemy. In fact, you have a savior that's won it all for you already. You need only remember what Saul remembered tonight, that the Lord is the one who works salvation for Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, persuade us through your spirit that we are not good enough and that we need your help and rescue. Persuade us that there is no help we need more than the same spirit who gave Saul this victory. Send your spirit upon each member of this church. Make us strong for the battle that each of us must fight each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.